Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you. It is great to have you here today. Um, we are in a series traveling through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, we shared last week, I want to just show you a quick slide from last week. We had, um, we talked about these virtues that Paul mentions. He says, put these things on, and this is kind of the list. And so this week, what we come to is kind of, what does this look like practically? Um, and so he tackles the issue of the home. What does this look like in the home when you uh, bring humility to the home, when you bring meekness to the home, when you bring all these different virtues into the home? And so um, he's going to address not just chapter, verse 18, but he's also going to address husbands, he's going to address fathers, he's going to address children, he's going to address bond servants. These are the different members of the household, and so we'll see what the Bible has to say um, there. Um, our text for today, we were forewarned, is Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, but it's part of a, a section in Paul's letter that runs all the way through chapter 4 and verse 1. So we're going to read verses 18 through 22, and then jump to chapter 4 and read verse 1. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then verse 1, Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Before we get into these verses this morning, we need to point out that Paul establishes a principle earlier in the letter in, in verse 11. So um, we'll you'll pop this up on the screen or you can follow along with me there or, or in your Bibles. He um, establishes a principle of equality in verse 11. Uh, let's take a look at it. Colossians 3 and verse 11. He says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And that last statement we'll get to here in just a second is the most important part of the whole thing. These are various categories of persons that people in the ancient Near East, people in Paul's world throughout Asia Minor, would have been very familiar with. These are categories that people in that part of the world would have used to rank the people of different um, just how they viewed somebody, their value. And so, for example, he mentions the Greeks here. The Greeks here, had a, they were pretty snooty. They had a, um, a high concept of themselves. And so they looked at the rest of the world that weren't Greek as not as wise, as not as smart as they were. And so they looked at themselves as kind of an enlightened class of people. They walked around with a sense of privilege, um, and they looked down on others. The Jews, likewise, had a very snooty view of the world, and they looked at anybody who was not Jewish. He mentions they're circumcised and uncircumcised. They looked at anybody who was not circumcised, who was not Jewish, therefore, as somebody of a lower class. Paul introduces yet another category of persons there in verse 11. He mentions the barbarian. The word barbarian was actually invented by the Greeks, and it was a word that they used to refer to anybody who was not Greek. Kind of very similar to how the Jewish people had a term, Gentiles, to refer to anybody that was not Jewish, the Gentiles. Well, the Greeks had a term to refer to anybody who was not Greek. They called them barbarians. That's where the, um, orient, um, where the etymology of that word comes from. So Paul ex expands the snootiness of the Greeks and the Jews um, and says this is how they look at society in general. And Paul is saying, though we may classify persons... Though we may categorize persons, though we may rank people, the Bible does not. He says Christ is all and is in all. And so Paul is establishing a principle of equality here in chapter 3. 
Now, this is radically different from how the ancient world would have functioned. Paul is turning the, the social norms and the societal expectations on their head. Paul establishes a principle of equality that all people are created in God's image and are equal in God's eyes. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find this same principle. After having a vision from the Lord Jesus, Paul says, I'm sorry, Peter says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, after having this vision, truly I understand that with God he shows no partiality. Verse 35, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In every nation of the world, this thing called the gospel is open to everybody. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everybody. That's right, it's open to everybody. James chapter 2 and verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever... So again, the Bible is open, or the scriptures, the gospel is open to everyone. And then Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25, Paul says, after all of these verses that we just read, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back, for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality in God's eyes. Friends, God is no respecter of persons. God looks at all people as equal in his eyes. People, despite the rankings that we may place in society on people, um, God looks at all people as equal. So back to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul goes a little bit further to say that the Scythian, which was an especially brutal and especially savage group of people that really uh, brought fear into the folks, the hearts and the minds of the people in the ancient Near East, Paul says even they are equal in God's eyes to the Greek, to the Jew, to any other categories of persons. And he even mentions the slave as well. So before we get into our text for today, I want to establish this biblical principle of equality. Before Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, the Bible said Christ is all and is in all. Follow me? We good? Okay. Now let's turn our verses for today. You'll notice beginning at verse 18 through chapter 4 and verse 1, that again, this forms a single unit in which Paul is speaking about life in the home. And so he's talking about orderliness in the home. How do we bring order? How do we bring peace into the home? And so that's, that's his aim. That's what he's talking about. I got a slide for you here, and it shows the different categories that Paul creates within these verses of people who live in the home. He mentions wives. He mentions husbands. He mentions fathers. He mentions parents. He mentions uh, children. He mentions... Um, bond servants. Bond servants were the people that lived in the home. They were part of the household, and they would go out and they'd plow the fields. They'd butcher the, the, the animals that they'd be eating that night. They'd help with food. They'd help with laundry. They'd do all, all sorts of tasks around the house. Again, that group of people that Paul addresses here in these verses are people living under the same roof. And in these verses, Paul kind of creates two categories of people, those that were called to lead and those who are called to serve. And you can see there on Paul's list, this is kind of how he breaks all of this down. And this should clue us in, again, as to Paul's intentions. He's not trying to establish a ranking of persons. He has already said everyone is equal in God's eyes. Right? He already said that, right? And so a uh, husband and wife are equal in God's eyes. A child is of no less value to, than the father. A bondservant of no less value to the matriarch in the home. But in 
for there to be order in the home, for that home to function and to fire on all cylinders, Paul says you can't have anarchy. Somebody has to lead, and so he creates a category of those who are to lead and a category of those who are to serve. And so this will require a spirit of cooperation on one side, and it will require a spirit of loving leadership on the other side. Um, Now, here's what's interesting. This group of people that you see up there on those two lists all go to church together. They're living under the same roof, but they all go to the same church together. And they're reminded when they go to church together that all of us are equal in God's eyes. Um, They are brothers and sisters in Christ. But when they get back home, and these persons, uh, even though their equality remains, how does this then work itself out practically? How do they ensure the functionality and the productivity of the household while maintaining no partiality toward persons? And so here's what Paul comes up with, and I think it's quite ingenious. Um, here's what Paul says. Um, the first relationship is between husbands and wives. Verse 18, he says, wives. Now notice that he's not addressing women in society. He's addressing women who are in a specific relationship. These are women who are married. These are wives he's speaking to. He's not, this, this statement has nothing to do with women in the workplace, has nothing to do with women out on the ball field, has nothing to do with women in business, has nothing to do with your sister or with your niece. A spe- this is a specific teaching for husbands and wives, and not for all husbands to all wives, but rather toward the single unit of one husband and of one wife. This is what Paul has to say. And I think it's worth pointing out that Paul is not prescribing a hierarchy of male-female relationships for society at large. Paul has been largely accused of doing that with this verse. He's been accused of saying, hey, look, the Bible's trying to paint a hierarchy of male and female relationships across all of society, and that is not at all what the Bible is doing. The Bible is saying that what, is, what Paul's trying to establish here is limited to the unit of a, one husband and one wife existing in the home together. Here's what Paul has to say. He says, wives... Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. That last phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, tells us that this is what God wants to see. That phrase modifies what came before it, submitting, wives submitting yourself to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord, modifies that, which means that submitting to our, your husband, therefore, is a characteristic or a feature of Christian wives. I've got another slide for you here, and that kind of breaks down this word to submit, because I think it's, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in the Greek that we don't get that uh, will be helpful to us. So let's take a look at it. That word submit in the Greek is the word hupataste. Try to say that one three times. I tried a couple times in my office this week. Didn't work out too good. Um, it means a spirit of cooperation. It means to place oneself in subjection to. Also, hupataste occurs in the middle voice. And this is a huge point. Please don't miss this. This is a huge point. This is not active imperative where Paul's just commanding somebody to do this because he told you to do this. The Bible's telling you to do this. This occurs in the, in the middle voice. And the middle voice implies that this is an invitation, an invitation to a woman to, uh, to put, place herself in a posture of, of um, cooperation. The Bible is inviting you to this. It is not commanding you ladies to maintain submission to your husbands. Now, why is that important? Why is the Bible leaving a little bit of an open door really important? Well, it's important because he may be a bad decision maker. It's important because he may be harsh. 
Or he may want to get into a domineering type of a posture. And so hidden behind the English, when we get to the original language, is not a command for wives to submit to their husbands in all things and in all circumstances, but rather to assume a posture of cooperation when he is exercising godly leadership. And I didn't hear any amens, but I know it's, it's there. You're just not really wanting to... Okay, you say, Gordon, that leaves the door wide open, that a wife can just be selective about where and in what things she wants to go along with. And you know what? That's right. And the Bible gives that latitude to women, wives submit to your husbands, is not asking for blanket blind obedience. Unfortunately, this verse has been used that way and has been used to, uh, in a negative way. I've got three young ladies down here in the front, and I would not any one of them to be married to a man one day thinking that I've just got to blindly follow whatever it is that he's directing our home and for whatever bonehead decisions he might come up with. Um, I would not want any woman to think that they are to go into marriage as a dutiful drone, obeying the every women direction of their husbands. That is not what the scripture has in mind. That is not what the middle voice implies. The Bible is not trying to rob women of thinking for themselves. Let me show you... um, something real quickly. There are three views in the world of male-female relationships, and sometimes the first of these views uh, gets credited, unfortunately, or gets attached to this verse here in Colossians 3, verse 18, and that would be an error. There are three views of male-female relationships. The first is what we might call the male-dominance view, and this is where the woman is a doormat. This is where she is regarded as lesser than a person. She is not seen as equal to the man, and we've already established, right, that God shows no partiality of persons. That men and women are equal in God's eyes. That husbands and wives are equal in God's eyes. That he shows no partiality of persons. Um, so we know that Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 is not directed that way. Toward this male dominance view. A second view of male-female relationships to the opposite extreme is what's called the egalitarian view. The egalitarian view is what's popular in culture today. The egalitarian view holds that men and women are equal. However, it goes further and emphasizes sameness. Please say that word with me. Sameness. That's what you're experiencing in our culture today. The culture is trying to say that there's a blending of genders, that men and women are the same, that there's no different, that men, women can do whatever men can do and vice versa. This is the notion that uh, all men, are cre- men and women are created equal, but in addition to that, that they're the same. And you can imagine that when you start blending the genders, what results is mass confusion. Confusion about what it, who is a man? What is a man? Who is a woman? What is a woman? What are the roles that they're supposed to play in the home and in society? Or what role is, um, especially when it comes to life in the home? Um, an emphasis on sameness topples generally held beliefs about the roles of mothers and wives and about the roles of fathers and husbands. Under egalitarianism, women lose their concern with presenting themselves as attractive to men, and men, men lose their interest in women. Now, the Bible sits in between these two polar extremes in what is called the complementarian view. And this is the view that men and women are equal, but that they serve different roles or they have different functions in the home, um, that men, are, men and women are equal, but that they have different roles. Therefore, when men and women are come together, each with their unique role to fulfill, they complement, hence the term complementarianism, they complement one another. Jesus, quoting from Genesis chapter 1, said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 7, he said, Therefore, as a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
There we have the Lord Jesus affirming the complementarian view of male-female relationships, that they are both equal in God's eyes, but they are not the same, that they have different functions, different roles to play when they come together. Back to our text, Colossians 3 and verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. May I remind us that the Lord Jesus actively submits to the will of the Father. Jesus said, John chapter 6 and verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then, of course, Jesus' famous prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, Not my will, but yours be done. Did the Father make Jesus do those things? No. Father didn't make him do those things. Jesus willingly said, you know what? I see the wisdom in the decision that you're wanting to make. I see that this is going to be a benefit and bring glory to God. And so Jesus willingly submitted himself and took up the task that was presented to him. He adopted a spirit of cooperation. Friends, if submission seems icky, if submission seems demeaning, if submission seems insulting, Perhaps it's because we have for too long been saturated in a culture of egalitarian view of male and female relationships. And so what is needed is a biblical view of male and female relationships. I present to you that the biblical view of male and female relationships is actually an honorable posture. It is what the Lord Jesus himself practices, and it brings glory to God. Biblical submission is Christ-likeness in action. It is you imitating the Lord Jesus in the context, ladies, of your marriage. And it is you doing that in front of your children. It is that you doing that and giving witness to it to your neighbors. And it is why on days like this, Proverbs 31 and verse 28, that your children rise up and call you blessed and your husband praises God for you. Amen? Now for the men. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Greek word that's used there for love is the word agape. There's several different words in the Greek language that translate to the one word love in English. Um, and the word agape is not talking about a brotherly love. It's not talking about a romantic love. But agape love is God's kind of love. Where the Bible says, for God so loved the world, that's agape love. It's a sacrificial kind of love that gives itself for the benefit of the other. Fellows, when our wives adopt a posture of cooperation and she shows herself willing to submit, that that should turn our affections inside out toward her. It should well up inside of us a longing to take her out for dinner, to dote on her, to bring her shiny stuff and flowers, to honor and respect her, and to remind her daily of her great worth to our family. That you are not submitting to my leadership of our home um, so that I get... what. Basically, we're not trying to get whatever it is that we want uh, to do, but that she is contributing to the orderliness and the success of our home. And then Paul, so husbands, agape your wives. And then he adds, as if to brush back on any male dominance theory that may have existed in Paul's day, and certainly it was there, it was a part of the culture. He wants to brush that back. He wants to ensure that that is not what he is advocating here by calling wives to submit to their husbands. We're not trying to advocate for a male dominance view. He says, he adds in verse 19, and do not be harsh with them. Fellas, when you're bigger and you're stronger and your emotions are buried a little deeper than hers, it is easy for men to take her for granted. It is easy for men to brush her aside. 
And the Bible is saying in unequivocal terms that this is not what Christian husbands do. Number three, third relationship inside the home is verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, he says, for this pleases the Lord. Notice that last verse, for, or that last phrase, for this pleases the Lord. As with submission, uh, this is not just good advice. This is what God expects. This is what God, Christian children do. They are obedient to their parents, and notice the qualifier, in everything. Now, of course, if mom and dad are asking you to do something that is contrary to the Scripture, we always put the Scripture as primary, right? This is our primary true source, and all other opinions and commands exist down here, and so we always go with what God's Word has to say. Um, but if it's not in contention with what God's Word has to say, then we go forward with our parents' request. For example, if mom and dad say no TV or no cell phones after such and such a time, then we honor that as their children. If mom and dad say no dating till you're 16 <clears throat> or whatever age they deem appropriate, <laughs> we honor that. And in so doing, sons and daughters, you contribute to the orderliness of your home. You make the home a happy place to be. What's the alternative? A child who always gets their way. What's the alternative? A child who is demanding or worse yet rebellious. Friends, that will upset the household. That will make the home a sad place. That will make it a grievous place. Not too little importance can be made about the obedience of children to their parents. And notice the word obey does not appear in the middle voice as submission does. That's active imperative. That's God saying, hey, look, this is what is required of you. Obedience is not selective and voluntary in this case. It is a command that is spoken multiple times throughout the Word of God. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 13 and verse 1, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. You say, Gordon, how old do I have to be that I still have to follow that verse? I mean, is there an expiration date on, uh, on when that verse uh, no longer applies? Um, well, I don't think there's an expiration date on this command because what we find in Scripture is occasion after occasion after occasion, for instance after for instance, of people well into their adulthood still listening to the ear of mom and dad. And so I don't see an expiration date on that. Uh, my mom, for example, for years wore clip-on earrings. You're like, well, what's the big deal about wearing clip-on earrings? Well, her dad had this thing about she, he didn't think women should be adorned with, with, uh, with jewelry. And so there's a verse in 1 Corinthians. Anyway, we're not going to get into the exegesis of all that. But in any case, but he just had this thing about women just shouldn't wear jewelry. And so to honor her father until the day he died, she wore clip-on earrings so that when she walked into his presence— Pop those things off, put them in her pocket, and she wasn't wearing jewelry, right? She was honoring her father that way. Now, a week after the funeral, <laughs> yeah, you can ask her about that. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, I've got myself in all kinds of hot water this morning. It's time to move on to our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Well, we've already answered that question Somewhat. I mean, this whole section of Scripture is kind of a how-to, a, a what difference this makes. Um, <clears throat> and so I want to kind of shift back toward what the whole point of what Paul's saying in these verses. He gives a lot of particulars, I know, but the point of all of this is Paul is—God has a desire for there to be orderliness in the home. God wants to see your home established 
and peace. That's what he wants for your house. You know, it seems to me there are plenty of people who thrive on chaos. I mean, our media is, makes a living on that. Politicians do their very best to divide and sow seeds of discord. Co-workers and bosses can intimidate, manipulate, backstab, and they make the environment of work sometimes a misery and a real drain to go to. Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice, that when you go home, it's a place of solace? When you go home, it's a place of peace. That when you walk through that door, it's not, okay, here comes another battlefield uh, that I'm having to experience for the day. Here's what the Bible has to say. Let's take a look at that slide that we started out with at the beginning um, where we saw the two lists. When it comes to life in the home, if we want order, if we want our home to be established in peace, then each person in the home has a part to play. The question for you and me is, am I willing to play that part? Children, are you striving to be obedient to your parents. Husbands, is your primary instinct toward your wife one of agape love? Wives, are you exhibiting a spirit of cooperation and a willingness, if his leadership is godly, to follow? Now that's a tall order, and those are some really tough questions. And the reason they're so tough is because what Paul is describing here, what Paul is inviting us to, is completely unnatural to us. My instincts are to be harsh. My instincts are to be short, to be my own person, to do my own thing, to run my own life. That's what comes natural to each of us. That's the natural man. Paul is inviting us rather to do what is unnatural, to submit, to obey, to love sacrificially. And husbands to lead in a godly way. Here's how I want to close out our time together today. I'm just going to assume that all across this sanctuary, there are moms and dads, husbands and wives, and children who want to come home to a place of solace and to a place that established, is established in peace. They want to come home to good order but who recognize that the capacity of each of us to do our part does not exist within ourselves, that we just don't have what it takes to make that happen on our own. And so in just a moment, I'd like for us to bow our heads and to close our eyes. And if you've got your children around, for, around you, I'd like for you to grab their hand and hold their hand. And I'm going to have a prayer for us. And if you've got your spouse there next to you to grab their hand, hold her hand, hold his hand. And together, let's petition God on high to supernaturally do for us what we are not capable of doing for ourselves. So you find those people if they're close by, and together we're going to petition God for his help and for his power. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, you want to see our homes established in peace. And you have laid before us a very difficult roadmap. Difficult because we're not wired for this, God. This is not natural to us. And so, Lord, we need Holy Ghost power to just flood our hearts, to flood our minds, to flood our homes.
so that, God, we can walk in the way that you have ordained. Lord, I pray for each and every household represented here this morning. That, God, you would bring sweet heaven's peace upon each home. Lord, that husbands and wives would find their children are striving for obedience. That husbands would love in a sacrificial way. That wives would find themselves with a spirit of cooperation. Lord, we want this. We long for this. We need this. May our homes, Lord, be established in peace. Lord, as we gather around this table, we're reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. And we are thankful, O oh God, for what you have done for us that makes all these things possible. Lord, in the quietness of this communion today, may we pray, continue to pray, continue to petition you to help us be that person, Lord, that our children need, that our spouse needs. Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you again, fresh and new. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.